Well, if you are uh, just joining us here this morning as a visitor, we've been working our way through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with these eight statements called the Beatitudes, which again, as I've explained in the past, is kind of a high churchy sounding word. It just means supreme blessedness or happiness. And so what Jesus is doing is he is describing eight things uh, that when lived out, they are actually descriptions of what it is to be a Christian. We'll be talking about that here in just a little bit. Um, But these are eight statements which really describe what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And this morning we come to what is arguably the most searching of all the Beatitudes. It is the last and final Beatitude, which reads like this, and I'm beginning in verse 10 of Matthew 5. These are the words of Jesus. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I say that this is possibly the most searching of the Beatitudes because we have come to see over the course of the past seven weeks that the Beatitudes are a description of a follower of Jesus. Christians are poor in spirit. Not they should be poor in spirit, but they are. No one becomes a Christian without first understanding and embracing the fact that they are needy and reliant on God. We are without resources to address our enormous sin debt. So in poverty of spirit, we turn to God and look to him in trust to do what is needed on our behalf. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he is in fact describing something that is a foundational entry point into becoming a Christian. There is no one who is a Christian who is not poor in spirit. And it would take the teeth out of what Jesus is saying to suggest otherwise. This is a description of what a Christian is. Not perfectly, to be sure. A Christian can always grow and should always be growing more and more in these areas, but the best way to understand the Beatitudes is that these are descriptions of a person who has been truly born again. Christians are people who grieve and mourn over their sins. Christians are meek. Christians are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Christians are merciful. Christians are pure in heart. Christians are peacemakers. We see this also in the fact that these descriptions are tied in every instance to a promised reward that will be realized in its fullness on the day of judgment when Jesus comes back. Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. They will be satisfied. They will inherit the earth. They will be shown mercy. They will see God. They will be called sons of God. All of these descriptions... These are all descriptions of final salvation. And this last attitude, which ends where it began with theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is no different. As we've talked about over the course of these Beatitudes, the things that Jesus talks about, 
Uh, there's, an, there's an awkward tension between the fact that they are already true of us and they are becoming more and more true. For, exen- for example, no one can become a Christian without being poor in spirit, without turning to God and saying, I need a savior, I cannot save myself. That is the very spirit of being poor in spirit. But we can always grow more and more in this poverty of spirit. And so we come to this one too. We have observed in all of our previous studies in the Beatitudes that each one naturally follows those that come before. And there is a very clear flow and a logical progression to the way that Jesus laid these statements out. And so yes, this last Beatitude is a very challenging statement because like all the rest, it is a description of what will naturally follow when all the other Beatitudes are lived out. Christians are persecuted because they are a certain type of person. When Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted, he is describing a Christian in exactly the same way as when he says, blessed are the meek, or blessed are the poor in spirit. And this naturally prompts a very searching question. Am I now or have I ever suffered persecution for righteousness' sake? Have I ever been reviled or persecuted or had people utter all kinds of evil against me falsely on Jesus' account? And before you say this is going a little too far, and surely persecution need not necessarily be the result of faithful Christian living, wrestle for a moment with other passages like these, And I'm not quoting all of them. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Matthew 10.22, You will be hated by all because of my name. John 15.20, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They most certainly did persecute Jesus. But the searching question that confronts my heart in this final beatitude is, am I persecuted? Vance Havner asks, where are the marks of the cross in your life? Are there any points of identification with your Lord? Alas, too many Christians wear medals but carry no scars. Luke 14, 27 says, And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. To quote Vance Havner again, We are not bearing our crosses every time we have a headache. An aspirin tablet will take care of that. What is meant is the trouble we would not have if we were not Christians. As we think about this sobering final beatitude, which promises persecution for Christians who faithfully live out all the other beatitudes, I want us to pause and understand a difference between our Lord and the one the Bible describes as the ruler of this world, Satan. Tell me, what does our God command us concerning the people who would revile and persecute and who would utter all kinds of evil falsely against the church? 
What should be our heart posture towards such human beings who personally represent all that we view as wrong in the culture? Our God says to pray for those who persecute us and to repay no one evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, our God says, feed him. Remember these words that our God speaks through the inspired pen of Paul in Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Brothers and sisters, the ruler of this world, the Lord of the flies, Beelzebub, Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, has no such scruples. Satan does not aim his fire at God or his angelic servants in the unseen realm. He meets out what punishment he can on God's flesh and blood representatives on the earth, the church. That's you and me. Last week, we studied the seventh beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. And isn't it striking that Jesus follows his description of the Christian as a peacemaker with the opposite of peace, persecution. (laughs) I thought to myself when I was mapping out this sermon series, this is just absolutely perfect for the first Sunday of the Christmas season. We'll talk about persecution. No, not at all. Nothing like a light sermon here to start that season off. When a Christian find themselves being persecuted on Jesus' account, They might wonder, in the midst of that, if they are experiencing persecution because they somehow failed as a peacemaker. Uh, Last week, in our study of what what it is to be a peacemaker, one of the many verses that we spent time with was Romans 12, 18, which says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It's the qualifying language that Paul uses in this verse that really grabs our attention. Our desire and our goal is to live peaceably with all. That's the way we live. That's what we pursue. That should be how we speak to others. When you go onto a Facebook comment thread, your aim should be living peaceably with all. But, and yet Paul says, if possible, and so far as it depends on you, And this clearly implies that peace may not always be possible and it may not always be entirely up to us whether we have it or not. Of course, the Christian should stand ready to sacrifice a lot for the sake of peace. I am not leading us here towards a loophole where in the presence of certain conditions, peace becomes impossible and a Christian is then free to cast off restraint and be obnoxious or abusive, or to strike out against flesh and blood. No, when we call ourselves Christians, we are saying that we are sincere from the heart imitators of the one who in his dying moments said, forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus was describing a Christian's response to naked aggression and unfair treatment when he said, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And do you remember how Abram dealt with his nephew Lot when they fought on the plain? 
saying, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Tell me, what are these passages describing but a willingness to sacrifice and even suffer loss for the sake of peace? But when Paul says, if possible, or so far as it depends on you, he is pointing us to the fact that there is something, brothers and sisters, there is something that can never be sacrificed for the sake of peace. And push comes to shove. You cannot surrender your allegiance to that thing. You cannot subordinate it in order to maintain harmony and peace with others. And that something is described by Jesus as for righteousness' sake, sake, and then as on my account. These are not two separate ideas because being righteous means being like Jesus. So being persecuted for righteousness' sake and being persecuted on Jesus' account are really one and the same. Blessed are those who are persecuted for being like Jesus. Our Bibles are absolutely chock-a-block full of stories who for the sake of righteousness are persecuted. What was the very first murder ever in the Bible? It was when Cain killed his brother Abel. This is really the first instance of naked, violent aggression on the earth. And why did Cain kill Abel? 1 John 3.12 says plainly, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. (laughs) You know what Abel, all he had to do to be at peace with Cain was? Just stop being righteous. All black sheep are instantly made very comfortable when God's white sheep become dirty gray. If he had just not been as righteous, it wouldn't have happened. We could go on and on and on. We could talk about Daniel being thrown into a lion's den. We could talk about Jeremiah being thrown down a well. And of course, the most famous example, the Prince of Peace himself, Jesus, being nailed to a cross. These men did not invite this treatment somehow. These were peaceable men whose love of righteousness brought them into conflict with wicked people. Have you ever thought about the book of Job? (laughs) What was Job's great sin that caused all this to be visited upon him? It was his righteousness. Of course, the operative phrase in all of this is for righteousness' sake. And it needs to be pointed out that there is a difference between behaving in an offensive way and causing offense. It is possible to be persecuted for the way we take a stand rather than for the stand we are taking. We have to be a little more nuanced than this. Every time that trouble is visited on the church is not just because of righteousness sake. I think sometimes Christians and Christian movements are capable of taking the right stand in a very wrong way. And not every bit of persecution is because we are righteous. There are times when we might agree with the substance of a fellow Christian's position, 
I think you're right on the issue. It's just I disagree with the spirit with which you're holding your views. I disagree with the language you're using. I disagree with the way you're presenting your views to non-believers. So I, I do think we need to look very carefully at what is the operative phrase here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Even so, church family, I think the church, like Abel, could make peace with the world tomorrow, today. (laughs) If this was the highest objective for which all else should be sacrificed, the church could make peace with the world today. We could go along to get along, couldn't we? It might even be fun. However, when we speak about righteousness, we are saying that there is such a thing. We are also sort of implying when we talk that way that there is such a thing as wickedness. And there are, in fact, objective standards for both. And this is a wildly offensive thing to say in our culture today, that there is right and wrong, that what you're doing is wrong. I've pointed this out in the past, but uh, in our culture today, they have taken just be yourself to be a guiding motto for all of life. The dominant worldview in our culture today is humanism. And for the humanist, the pursuit of truth is wrapped up in the idea of becoming more authentically yourself. This is what they believe. To live in the truth is to be more authentically yourself. But the Christian says the pursuit of truth is wrapped up in becoming more authentically like Jesus. Who I am is the problem. Don't tell me to be more like myself (laughs) if who I am does not in the least resemble the one who is righteous. In fact, It is loving to tell me when I am not being like Jesus. But I might persecute you for it. (laughs) I might think poorly of you in that moment. It might not go well. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when I look at your life And I am so challenged by your example. You weren't going out of the way to stick it in my face, but just by virtue of you living for Jesus, I'm uncomfortable in your presence because I'm convicted. It is not uncommon to hear worldly people say that they admire Jesus. I've heard this my whole life from non-believers. They say things like they think Jesus is good and noble. It's Christians I don't like but they don't seem to understand the full import of Jesus and the claims he has made on their lives. They don't understand fully who this man is or what he claimed to be true about himself. And I've known churches that are good and noble too, but who do not emphasize holy living or the necessity of the gospel. These churches build playgrounds, community gardens. They circulate petitions in support of popular social action and so forth. 
But there is no talk in such churches or in these churches of Jesus as Lord or holiness or how a person can be saved or the seriousness of a person's sin which separates them from God. There is no description of conduct as wrong or sinful or wicked in such a church. So many Christians and churches have gone this way because it is inoffensive. There is a form of godliness that denies its power, and Satan is fine with such a church. Luke 6.26 says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Again, this is not an invitation to go forth and be obnoxious. <laughs> you, you cannot... You cannot um, become blessed by courting controversy. I, I don't think that Daniel ever went out of his way to be persecuted. He didn't desire it. He didn't seek it out. But he was thrown in the lion's den just as a result of living righteously. We need to remember Jesus' words in Luke twelve fifty one. Do you think I came to give peace? No, not peace, but divisions. If doing and believing and saying what is right causes me to lose every earthly friend, I should count that but a small loss compared with the favor of our Lord. And we should not fall into the trap of compromising the truth in order to preserve harmony. Don't you feel it? Don't you feel a growing tide in our culture that is saying, church, give us what we want? <laughs> And church, we've been tasked with giving people not what they want, but what they need. And what they need is absolutely not what they want. And when you dare bring up Jesus or the gospel or righteousness, holiness, oh, <laughs> what results? Christ is the great peacemaker, and we are called to be peacemakers also. But when it comes to peace with God, this will only come through surrender and not a ceasefire. I think the world is willing to sign an armistice, a ceasefire with the church. But the church keeps on talking about the necessity of surrendering to God, and them's is fighting words. I was talking once with a Christian of mine, a Christian friend of mine from Turkey. Uh, this man, his name is Fikret Bocek. He has an incredible testimony. I hope someday to get him here to State Road Church and tell his story. Uh, he became a Christian because as a young man growing up in Turkey, he watched the movie Ben-Hur. And in Ben-Hur, Jesus is depicted as being uh, crucified. And he thought, that can't be right. That couldn't be what happened. He had never heard that Jesus was crucified. He went to the library, he found an Encyclopedia Britannica, and he looked up Jesus. And there he confirmed that Jesus had been crucified. And this was the beginning of his journey towards becoming a Christian. Today, he and his wife have a small house church in Smyrna, Turkey. But he's traveled extensively throughout the Middle East. And I was in conversation one time, and he was telling me that in many countries in the Middle East, including Iran, we were talking about Iran specifically in this conversation, he said, and it surprised me, that the government insists that people in Iran have freedom of religion. I don't know a whole lot about Iran, but I was kind of incredulously asked, how can they say that? And he explained that according to their logic, Christians are free to believe whatever they want. 
It's just illegal to try and convert anybody else to Christ. And do you see what Iran is trying to do there? They have invited Christians to enter into a ceasefire. If you will just kindly refrain from talking about Jesus, we won't throw you in prison. (laughs) You can think Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, Just don't say that to anyone. Is that freedom of religion? Is that freedom to anyone who understands the commands of the Bible? Is that freedom to anyone who understands inner communion with the Spirit? Is that freedom to anyone for whom the gospel rises in your throat as naturally as song in a bird? It's not freedom. It's a ceasefire. (laughs) It's, It's a compromise. And what, I, what Iran accomplishes through the threat of the state is frighteningly being accomplished here in the United States through the softer means of social pressure. In our own workplaces, family gatherings, and so on. If this idea of not being persecuted for righteousness' sake strikes you as a little over the top, let me just suggest as a possibility that means we haven't tried it that much. If you would just kindly refrain, we won't make things awkward at Thanksgiving. We won't talk to HR. We won't make a scene. It's also sadly true, and unfortunately we have to point this out, that anyone who has studied church history knows that down through the years a fair amount of persecution has come from within the church. Not the world. Uh, The church suffers not so much from woodpeckers banging on the outside of the building as termites within. (laughs) This is true down through the years. Uh, The most bitter and intractable enemies of Jesus in the early church came from where? The Jewish religious authority. And later it was Judaizers in the early church who caused a lot of headaches for Paul. Paul, in many of his letters, is addressing... Christians who would blend Judaistic legal practice with grace, saying, yeah, 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 you need Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised, and you have to do the feast, and you have to do all this. And for all this, Paul was persecuted. The history of Christendom has been marked by a lot of intra-church persecution, and even today, there are lots of church-going folks who hold ideas about Christianity that are far removed from the fullness of what the Bible actually teaches. And when a Christian comes along in all sincerity and truth, trying to follow Jesus along the narrow way, even if they are not sticking it in people's faces, they're just trying to do their level best, those who are looking on, it's not uncommon for them to feel challenged and uncomfortable. Oftentimes, in a church, opposition will arise, not because what is happening is a departure from biblical Christianity, but because it is a departure from what is known and comfortable and cherished. Uh, If you can allow me just to be vulnerable, I have a story to tell, and it's not particularly flattering to me. I don't tell the story because I am a uh, spiritual exhibitionist or anything. I don't like bearing my soul. But just as I was preparing the message, it was a time, I think, where I, uh, this happened to me. When I was living in California, there was a friend of mine, a retired pastor. His name was Jim Olson. 
and he set up outside the post office a little table with a sign on the front of it that just said, let's talk. And his aim was just to have people sit down and talk with him. He just wanted to talk to them about Jesus. Uh, the post office said, you can't do that here. <laughs> so, so he moved his little table along to a, kind of a quasi-public space next to a bank. There was a lot of foot traffic there. And I have to tell you, at the time, I had some critical words for what Jim Olson was doing, which sounds weird, right? I just thought that's not the way, right way to go about it. Uh, that, you know, you should become friends with a person first. I was full of, but do you know what was really going on? And this is ugly, guys. This is really ugly. I just was not sharing my faith with anybody. I was living in a Christian bubble. All my friends were Christians. And what few non-Christians in my life, I was too nervous to ever bring up Jesus. So when I saw Jim Olson take a day off, set up a table and spend the whole day deliberately trying to engage non-Christians about the gospel, guys, I felt convicted. And I said some critical things of Jim Olson, not because I thought his really strategy was wrong, but just because I was uncomfortable by his example. Now, guys, that's an ugly truth. Uh, but I'm like you. I, I love the cross. I love that Jesus died for me. I love that the Holy Spirit showed me that that's what was going on in my heart, and now I can confess that. I don't take any delight in bearing my soul over that. I just want you to know this is how it happens. You know, when it says there that they will utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, what was I doing when I spoke about what Jim Olson was doing but uttering things falsely? I participated in that. We should never be thoughtlessly offensive or crude, or abrasive. Colossians 4, 5 through 6, 6 says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. 1 Peter three fifteen exhorts Christians to talk about their hope in Christ, quote, with gentleness and respect. But the church would never, should never make a peace with error or wickedness. We should enjoy our God in all genuineness. We should live holy lives. We should also pursue those who have embraced error and are enslaved to it in order that they might deliver, be delivered and know a true lasting peace with God, a peace built upon the triumph of truth, not the compromise of it. But along the way, as we love God, live with God, live for God, speak about God, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He goes on to say, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Uh, this language is very reminiscent, I think, of the words that the angels spoke to the shepherd on that first Christmas, right? The angel said, we bring you great news of great, we, uh, great news, great joy for all the people. In other words, rejoice and be glad. And what they were saying there is that they, we are announcing the arrival of something that will make persecution worth it. Just real quick, in closing, I have two things that should cause us to feel joy and gladness in the midst of persecution. The first is just this, rejoice and be glad that you are in Christ. Our Lord said to his brothers, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. To his disciples, he said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. The world does not hate its own. It does hate Jesus. And if Jesus is allowed to shine in our lives, in what we say and what we do, as well as what we don't say and what we don't do, the world will hate the Jesus that they see in us as well. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Just be glad that you're with Jesus. <laughs> Just be glad that you're lumped in with him. I, I'm often struck by when the resurrected Lord confronted Saul on the road to Damascus. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? Did he say that? What did he say? Why are you, yeah, Raina. Why are you persecuting me? That's exactly right. Excellent answer. Why are you persecuting me, he says. Saul never imprisoned Jesus. He never beat Jesus. He never went from town to town arresting Jesus. He was present when they stoned Stephen. He did that to Jesus' followers. But Jesus so thoroughly associates with you. <laughs> he so thoroughly associates with you that when the world hits you, he says, you're persecuting me. Think about Matthew 25 when Jesus says, on the day when the king returns, he'll separate them to the left and to the right, and he'll say to those on his right, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And they'll say, when did we do those things to you? And he'll say, assuredly, I tell you, whatever you did unto the least of these, my brothers, you did unto me. Jesus so thoroughly associates with you. He wore you on the cross. And he says, if you will wear me publicly, if you will bear the scorn of the world with me, if you will associate with me as I associated with you, rejoice and be glad. It is worth it. He also says, rejoice and be glad because of where you are going and what awaits you there. <laughs> Here I'm quoting from 2 Corinthians 4. It says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you know what this reminds me of? <laughs> it's strange. And it's kind of a lighthearted illustration to tie to such a weighty thought. 
But just in closing, and here after this, I'm done. Do you guys remember back to when you were in school and it was like the last day of school before Christmas break? Right? It's basically that last day of school before Christmas break is just theater. Does any serious education happen on that day? You're just there. You're just waiting out the clock. Everyone knows it. But I'm telling you, when I'm sitting there in the clock, in in the school, the clock is ticking down. It's almost Christmas break. I am bearing up under whatever is happening at the school. The bully, whatever, I don't care. Do do your worst. I'm about to get out of here and go home for weeks. And there's going to be friends and family. There's going to be fun times of celebration. There's going to be feasting. There's going to be gifts. Do your worst. (laughs) I mean, almost as bad as that last day of school was, it almost made what was coming better, (laughs) right? The unstoppable clock, the idling buses, I was ready to get out of there. And what God is mercifully doing in these moments is he's saying, rejoice and be glad. You're going to be delivered out of this reality into something unbelievably excellent. And it is coming. Bear up under the persecution. Rejoice and be glad. This is how they treated the prophets before you. But pleasures at the right hand of the Father are coming. Rejoice and be glad. These are the days when we must give people what is needed. We must live for Jesus in the midst of these broken days. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this room. Father, I pray that you would teach us more and more to become poor in spirit, to grieve over our sins. God, create in us a deeper humility and a meekness. By your Holy Spirit, God, cause us to hunger more and more for righteousness. God, give us a heart of mercy towards those who have sinned against us, being reminded always of the great, amazing mercy you have shown to us. God, give us purity of heart. Make of us peacemakers. And God, if in living that out, the world persecutes us as it persecuted Jesus, Father, we're not going out of our way here to look for a fight, but just in the natural course of living with you and following Jesus, others are made uncomfortable. Father, I pray that, uh, God, you would remind us of this verse, that we would rejoice and be glad, knowing that our reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before us. God, uh, we ask your forgiveness for those times when we, have shrunk, when we shrink away, when we hide our light under a basket. Father, when we fail to speak, God, we ask your forgiveness for those times when we speak and say things wrong. What comes out is a word of anger or biting sarcasm. 
Father, we ask, Lord, that you would give us words that are seasoned with salt, full of grace. Give us wisdom to know how to answer everyone. But God, give us courage, and as we pursue peace, and if possible, so far as it depends on us, we seek to live peaceably with all. God, give us the courage to not sacrifice that which we cannot and to endure persecution when it comes. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.